Charles Spurgeon. A Charles Spurgeon podcast. The Prodigal's Reception. Sermon number 588. Delivered on Sunday morning, September 4th, 1864, by Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Luke 15, verse 20. There he is. He is as wretched as misery itself, as filthy as his brute associates who could satisfy themselves with pods while he could not. His clothes hang around him in rags and what he is on the outside That he is on the inside. He is disgraced in the eyes of the good, and the virtuous remember him with indignation. He has some desires to go back to his father's house, but these desires are not sufficient to alter his condition. Mere desires have not scraped the filth from him, nor have they so much as patched his rags. Whatever he may or may not desire, he is still filthy still disgraced, still an alien from his father's house, and he knows it, for he has come to himself. He would have been angry if we had said as much as this before, but now we cannot describe him in words too dark. With many tears and sighs, he assures us that he is even worse than he appears to be, and that no man can know all the depth of the vileness of his conduct. He has spent his living with prostitutes. He has despised a generous parent's love and broken loose from his wise control. He has done evil with both his hands to the utmost of his strength and opportunity. There he stands, regardless of his confession, just as I have described him to be. For even though he has said within himself, I have sinned, yet that confession has not removed his griefs. He acknowledges that he is not worthy to be called a son, and it is true he is not, but his unworthiness is not removed by his consciousness of it, nor by his confession of it. He has no claims to a father's love. If that father shuts the door in his face, he acts with justice toward him. If he refuses so much as to speak a single word, except words of rebuke, no one can blame the father for the son has so sadly erred. To this, the son raises no objections. He confesses that if he is cast away forever, he well deserves it. This picture, I know, is the photograph of some who are now present. You feel your vileness and sinfulness, but you cannot look upon that sense of vileness as in any way extenuating or altering your condition. You feel, but you cannot plead your feelings. You confess this morning that you have desires toward God, but that you have no rights to Him. You cannot demand anything at His hands. If your soul was sent to hell, His righteous law approves it, and so does your own conscience. You can see your rags. You can mark your filthiness. You can long for something better, but you are no better. You have no more claims than you used to have upon God's mercy. 
You stand here today a self-convicted offender against the loving kindness and holiness of God. I pray that for those of you who are in this case, I may be the bearer of a message from God to your soul this morning. And oh, you who know the Lord, offer up earnest and silent prayers even now that my message may come home with power to troubled consciences. And I implore you for your own profit, look back to the hole of the pit from where you were dug and to the miry clay from where you were drawn and remember how God received you. And while we talk of what he is willing and able to do for the far off sinners, let your souls leap with joyous gratitude at the recollection of how he received you into his love and made you partakers of his grace in days gone by. There are two things in the text. The first is the condition of many seekers. He is still a long way off. And then secondly, the matchless kindness of the Father toward him. First, dear friends, the condition of such a seeker. He is still a long way off. He is a long way off if you consider one or two things. Remember his lack of strength. This poor young man had for some time been without food, brought so very low that the pods which the pigs ate would have seemed like a delicacy to him if he could have eaten them. He is so hungry that he has become emaciated, and to him every step has the weariness of miles within it. It costs him many pains and sore griefs to drag himself along, even a short distance. So the sinner is a long way off from God when you consider his utter lack of strength to come to God. Even such strength as God has given him is very painfully used. God has given him strength enough to desire salvation, but those desires are always accompanied with deep and sincere grief for sin. The point which he has already reached has exhausted all his power, and all he can do is to fall down before Jesus and say, Oh, for this no strength have I. My strength is at thy feet to lie. He is a long way off again if you consider his lack of courage. He longs to see his father, but yet the probabilities are that if his father should come, the prodigal would run away. The very sound of his father's footsteps would act upon him as they did on Adam in the garden. He would hide himself among the trees so that instead of calling out for his father, the great father would have to call for him. Where are you? Poor fallen creature, where are you? His lack of courage, therefore, makes the distance long, for every step has been taken as though into the jaws of death. Ah, says the sinner, it must be a long time before I can dare to hope, for my iniquities have gone over my head so that I cannot look up. Are you then in alarm and dread this morning? Your prayers seem to you to have been no prayers at all. When you think of God, terror fills your mind and you feel that you are a long, long way from him. You imagine that it is not likely that he will hear your cries or pay attention to your words. You are still a long way off. You are a long way off when we consider 
the difficulty of the way of repentance. John Bunyan tells us that Christian found, when he went back to the arbor after his lost role, that it was very hard work going back. Every backslider finds this to be the case, and every penitent sinner knows that there is a bitterness in mourning for sin comparable to the loss of one's only son. A drowning man feels no great pain. The sensations of drowning are even said to be pleasant. It is only when the man is being restored to life, when the blood begins to make the veins tingle because life leaps there, when once again the nerves are sensible, then we are told that the whole body is full of many agonies. But then they are the agonies of life. And so the poor penitent feels that the goal must be a long way off. For if he had to feel as he now feels, even for a month, it would be a long time. And if he had to journey many miles as he now journeys, so painfully, with such bleeding feet, it would indeed be a long way. Let us look into this matter and show that the road really is long if we view it in certain lights. There are many seeking sinners who are a long way off in how they live their life. I think I see the man now and hear him thus bewail himself. I do not feel as if I can lay hold of Christ, for I cannot master my own passions yet. When I read of what saints are and observe what true Christians are, I feel that my conduct is so inconsistent and so far from what it ought to be that I am a long way off. Ah, dear friend, you are, and if you had come to God by the way of your own righteousness, you would never reach him, for he cannot be found in this way. Christ Jesus is the way. He is the safe, sure, and perfect road to God. He who sees Jesus has seen the Father, but he who looks to himself will only see despair. The road to heaven by Mount Sinai is impassable by mortal man, but Calvary leads to glory. The secret place of the stairs are in the wounds of Jesus. Again, you feel yourself a long way off as to knowledge. Why, you say, before I felt this way, I considered myself a master of all theology. I could twist the doctrines around my fingers. When I listened to a sermon, I felt quite able to criticize it and to give my judgment. Now I see that my judgment was about as valuable as the criticism of a blind man upon a picture, for I did not have spiritual sight. Now I feel myself to be a fool. I do know what sin means, but only to a degree. Even here I feel that I am not conscious of the heinousness of human guilt. I have heard the doctrine of the atonement of Christ, and I thank God I know it to some degree, but the excellence and glory of the substitutionary sacrifice which Christ offered, I confess I do not fully comprehend. The sinner's confession now is that instead of understanding Scripture, he finds he needs to go like a child to school to learn the ABC of it. Oh, sir, he says, I am a long way off from God, for I am so ignorant, so foolish. I seem to be as a beast when I think of the deep things of God. Ah, poor soul, poor young wandering brother, I do not wonder that it seems this way to you, for the ignorance of the carnal man 
is indeed fearful and only God can give you light, but he can give it to you in a moment. And the distance between you and him upon your mind of ignorance can be bridged at once. And you may comprehend even today with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In another point also, many an earnest seeker is a long way off. I mean, in his repentance. Alas, he says, I cannot repent as I ought. If only I could feel the brokenness of heart which I have heard and seen in others. Oh, what I would give for penitential sighs. How thankful I would be if my eyes were fountains of tears, if I could even feel that I was as humble as the poor tax collector and could stand with downcast eyes and beat upon my breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But alas, I have been a hearer of the word for years and all the progress I have made is so little that while I know the gospel to be true, I do not feel it. I know myself to be a sinner, and sometimes I mourn over it, but my mourning is so superficial. My repentance is a repentance that needs to be repented of. Oh, sir, I wish I had a genuine repentance. Oh, how I pant to be brought to feel that I am lost and to desire Christ with that vehement desire which will not be denied. But in this point, my heart seems as hard as hell-hardened steel, cold as a rock of ice. It will not, it cannot yield, though wooed by divine love. Iron itself may run in liquid torrents, but my soul yields to nothing. Lord, break it. Lord, break it. Ah, poor heart, I see that you are a long way off. But do you know if my Lord should appear to you this morning and say to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love, your heart would break in a moment. Law and terrors do but harden, all the while they work alone. But a sense of blood-bought pardon can dissolve a heart of stone. Long way off as you are, if the Lord pardons you, while yet callous and consciously hard of heart, will you not then fall at his feet and commend that great love with which he has loved you, even when you were dead in trespasses and sins? Yes, but I think I hear one say, There is another point in which I feel a long way off, for I have little or no faith. I have heard faith preached every Sunday. I know what it is, I think I do, but I cannot reach it. I know that if I cast myself wholly upon Christ, I shall be saved. I quite comprehend that he does not ask anything of me, any willing or doing or feeling. I know that Christ is willing to receive the greatest sinner out of hell if that sinner will simply come and trust him. I have tried to do it. Sometimes I have thought I had faith, but then again when I have looked at my sins, I have doubted so dreadfully that I perceive I have no faith at all. There are sunshiny moments with me when I think I can say, my faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But oh, when I feel my corruptions rising upon me, I hear a voice saying, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and I soon discover my own weakness. 
I do not have the faith that I want. I am a long way off from it, and I fear that I shall never possess it. Yes, I perceive your difficulty, for I have felt the sorrow of it myself. But, O my Lord, who is the giver of faith, who is exalted on high to give repentance and forgiveness of sins, can give you the faith you so much desire and can cause you this morning to rest with perfect confidence upon the work which he has finished for you. To gather up all things in one word, the truly penitent sinner feels that he is yet a long way off in everything. There is no point upon which you can talk with him, but it will be sure to lead to a confession of his deficiency. He says of himself, All unholy and unclean, I am nothing else but sin. See, see how well my master has pictured your case in this parable. Still a long way off, still covered with rags, still polluted with filth, still in disgrace, still a stranger to your father's house. There is only this one positive point about you. You have your face toward the father. You have a desire toward God. And you would, oh, you would, if you could, lay hold upon eternal life. But you feel too far off for anything like comforting hope. Now I must confess, I feel many fears about you who are in this state. I am afraid lest you should come so far and yet go back. For there are many whom we thought had come as far as this, and yet they have gone back after all. Oh, remember that desires after God will not change you so as to save you. You must find Christ. Remember that to say, I will arise, is not enough, nor even to arise. You must never rest until your Father has given you the kiss, until he has put the best robe on you. I am afraid lest you should rest satisfied and say, I am in a good state. The minister tells us that many are brought to such a state before they are saved, so I will stop here. My dear friend, it is a good state to pass through, but it is a bad state to rest in. I pray that you would never be content with a sense of sin. Never be satisfied with merely knowing that you are not what you ought to be. It never cures the fever for a man to know he has it. His knowledge is in some degree a good sign for it proves that the fever has not yet driven him to delirium, but it never gives a man perfect health to know that he is sick. It is a good thing for him to know it, for he will not otherwise send for the physician, but unless it leads to that, he will die, whether he feels himself to be sick or not. A mere consciousness that you are hungry while your father's hired servants have more than enough bread will not satisfy your hunger. You need more than this. You are a long way off, and I implore you to remember the danger, lest you should stop here or should lose what sensibility you already have. Perhaps despair may come upon you. Some have committed suicide while under a sense of the greatness of their distance from God because they dared not look to the Savior. Our prayers shall go up to God that the second part of our text may come true to you and that both backsliding and despair 
may be prevented by the speedy coming of God, dressed in the robes of grace, to meet your guilty soul and give you joy and peace through believing. Secondly, and oh, may the Master give us His help, we have to consider the matchless kindness of the Heavenly Father. We must take each word and dwell upon it. First of all, we have here divine observation. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. It is true he has always seen him. God sees the sinner in every state and in every position. Yes, and sees him with an eye of love too. Even such a chosen sinner as is described in this text, and not with complacency, but with affection. God looks upon his wandering chosen ones. I say that the father saw his son when he spent his living with prostitutes, saw him with deep sorrow when he was longing to fill his belly with the pods that the pigs ate. But now, if there can be such a thing as for divine omniscience to become more exact, the father sees him with an eye full of a more tender love, a greater care. His father saw him. Know what a sight it was for a father to see His son, it is true, but his profligate son, who had dishonored his father's name. There he is. What a sight for a father's eye. He is filthy as though he had been rolling in the mire, and his fine clothing has long ago lost its rich colors and hangs on him in wretched rags. The father does not turn away and try to forget him. He fixes his full gaze upon him. Sinner, You know that God sees you this morning. Sitting in this house, you are observed by the God of heaven. There is not a desire in your heart unread by him, nor a tear in your eye which he does not observe. I tell you, he has seen your midnight sins. He has heard your cursing and your blasphemies. And yet he has loved you in spite of all you have done. You could hardly have been a worse rebel against him And yet he has written you in his book of love and determined to save you. And the eye of his love has followed you wherever you have gone. Is there not some comfort here? But why could he not see his father? Was it the effect of the tears in his eyes that he could not see? Or was it that his father was of quicker sight than he was? Sinner, you cannot see God for you are unbelieving and carnal and blind, but he can see you. Your tears of penitence block up your sight, but your father is quick of eye, and he beholds you and loves you now. In every glance, there is love. His father saw him. Observe that this was a loving observation, for it is written, his father saw him. He did not see him as a mere casual observer. He did not notice him as a man might notice his friend's child with some pity and benevolence, but he saw him as a father alone can do. What a quick eye a parent has. Why, I have known a young man come home, perhaps for a short holiday. The mother has heard nothing, not even a whisper as to her son's conduct, and yet she cannot help observing to her husband There is something about John which makes me suspect that he is not living as he should. I do not know, my husband, she says, what it is, 
but yet I am sure he is getting among bad companions. She will read his character at once. And the father notices something too. He cannot precisely say what, but a cause for anxiety he knows it to be. But here we have a father who can see everything and who has as much of the quickness of love as he has of the certainty of knowledge. He can, therefore, see every spot and bruise and note every festering sore. He sees his poor son right through as though he were a vase of crystal. He reads his heart, not merely the telltale garments, not merely the sorrowful tale of the unwashed face and those worn-out shoes, but he can read his soul. He understands the whole of his miserable plight. Oh, poor sinner, there is no need for you to give information to your God, for he knows it already. You need not pick your words in prayer in order to make your case plain and clear, for God can see it. And all you have to do is to uncover your wounds, your bruises, and your festering sores, and say, My Father, you see it all. The dark story of my life you read in a moment. My Father, have mercy on me. The next thought to be well considered is divine compassion. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. Does not the word compassion mean suffering with or fellow suffering? What is compassion then but putting yourself into the place of the sufferer and feeling his grief? If I may say so, the father put himself into the son's rags and then felt as much pity for him as that poor ragged prodigal could have felt for himself. I do not know how to give rise to your compassion this morning, except by supposing that it is your own case. I will suppose, Father, it is a son of yours. I saw not many hours ago a young man who brought to my mind the prodigal in this case, his face marked with innumerable lines of sin and wretchedness, his body lean and emaciated, his clothes worn thin, his whole appearance the very mirror of woe. He knocked at my door. I knew his case. I cannot hurt him by telling it. He had disgraced his family, not once nor twice, but many times. He had drawn out what money he had in the business of a respectable family, came to London with 400 pounds, and in about five weeks spent it all. And now, without a single farthing to help himself, he often lacks bread and I fear that he has often crept at night into the parks to sleep. He wanders the streets by day, a vagabond and a reprobate. I have written to his friends. The case has been put before them. They will not own him. And considering his shameful conduct, I do not wonder at it. He has no father and no mother left. If he were helped beyond mere food and lodging, as far as we can judge, it would be money thrown away. Yet as I think of him, I cannot help but feel that if he were a son of mine and I were his father and I saw him come to my door in such a condition, whatever the crime was that he had committed, I must embrace him and kiss him. The largest sin could not put out forever the sparks of paternal love. I might condemn the sin in the sharpest and most severe terms. I might regret that he had ever been born, 
but I could not shut him out of my house, nor refuse to call him my child. My child he is, and my child he shall be until he dies. You feel just now that if it were your child, you would do the same. That is how God feels toward you, his chosen, his repentant child. You are his child. I hope so. I trust so. Those desires which you have in your soul toward him make me feel that you are one of his children. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He will have compassion on you. He will receive you to himself. Be of good courage, for the text says he felt compassion for him. Notice and observe carefully the swiftness of this divine love. He ran. Probably he was walking on the top of his house and looking out for his son when one morning he just caught a glimpse of a poor sorry figure in the distance. If he had been anyone other than the father, he would not have known it to be his son. His appearance was so altered. But he looked and looked again until at last he said, It is he. Oh, what marks of famine are upon him, and of suffering too. And down comes the old gentleman. I think I see him running downstairs, and the servants come to the windows and the doors and say, Where is master going? I have not seen him run at that rate for many a day. See, there he goes, and before the son has had time to notice who it is, he is on him, embracing and kissing him. I recollect a young prodigal who was received in the same way. Here he stands. It is I, myself. I sat in a little chapel, little dreaming that my father saw me. Certainly, I was a long way off. I felt something of my need for Christ, but I did not know what I must do to be saved. Though taught the letter of the word, I was spiritually ignorant of the plan of salvation. Though taught it from my youth up, I did not know it. I felt, but I did not feel what I wished to feel. If ever there was a soul that knew itself to be far off from God, I was that soul. And yet in a moment, in one single moment, no sooner had I heard the words, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. No sooner had I turned my eyes to Jesus crucified, then I felt my perfect reconciliation with God. I knew my sins to be forgiven. There was no time for getting out of my heavenly father's way. It was done and done in an instant. And in my case, at least, he ran and embraced me and kissed me. I hope that will be the case this morning. Before you can get out of this place, before you can get back to your old doubting and fearing and sighing and crying, I hope here the Lord of love will run and meet you and embrace and kiss you. After noticing observation, compassion, and swiftness, do not forget the nearness. He embraced him and kissed him. This I can understand by experience, but it is too wonderful for me to explain. He embraced him. If he had stood at a distance and said, John, I would be very glad to kiss you, but you are too filthy. I do not feel inclined to embrace you just yet. You are too far gone for me. I love you, but there is a limit to the display of love. 
After I get you into a proper state, then I may manifest my affection to you. But I cannot just now, while you are so very foul. Oh, no. But before he is washed, he embraces him. There is the wonder of it. Not as sanctified, not as having anything good in himself, but as nothing but a filthy, foul, desperate rebel. God embraces and kisses him. Oh, what a strange miracle of love. The riddle is unriddled when you remember that God had never looked upon that sinner as he was in himself, but had always looked upon him as he was in Christ. And when he embraced the prodigal, he did in effect only embrace his once suffering son, Jesus Christ. And he kissed the sinner because he saw him in Christ and therefore did not see the sinner's loathsomeness, but saw only Christ's comeliness, and therefore kissed him as he would have kissed his substitute. Observe how near God comes to the sinner. It was said of that eminent saint and martyr, Bishop Hooper, that on one occasion a man in deep distress was allowed to go into his prison to tell his tale of conscience, But Bishop Hooper looked so sternly upon him and addressed him so severely that the poor soul ran away and could not get comfort until he had sought out another minister of a gentler aspect. Now, Hooper really was a gracious and loving soul, but the sternness of his manner kept the penitent away. There is no such stern manner in our Heavenly Father. He loves to receive his prodigals. When he comes, there is no stay away or keep off to the sinner, but he embraces and kisses him. There is yet another thought to be brought out of the metaphor of kissing. We are not to pass that over without dipping our cup in the honey. In kissing his son, the father recognizes relationship. He said with emphasis, you are my son. Again, that kiss was the seal of forgiveness. He would not have kissed him if he had been angry with him. He forgave him, forgave him all. There was, moreover, something more than forgiveness. There was acceptance. I receive you back into my heart as though you were worthy of all that I give to your elder brother, and therefore I kiss you. Surely also this was a kiss of delight as if he took pleasure in him, delighting in him, and feeling more happy to see him than to see all his fields and the fattened calves and all the treasures that he possessed. His delight was in seeing this poor, restored child. Surely this is all summed up in a kiss. And if this morning my father and your father should come out to meet grieving penitence in a moment, He will show you that you are his children. You will say, Abba, Father, on your way home. You shall feel that your sin is all forgiven, that every particle of it is cast behind Jehovah's back. You shall feel today that you are accepted. As your faith looks to Christ, you shall see that God accepts you because Christ, your substitute, is worthy of God's love and God's delight. Yes, and I trust you shall this very morning delight yourself in God because God delights himself in you. And you shall hear him whisper in your ear, you shall be called Hephzibah, for the Lord delights in you. 
I wish I could describe such a text as this, as it ought to be. It needs some tender, sympathetic heart, some man who is the very soul of pathos, to work out the tender touches of such a verse as this. But oh, though I cannot describe it, I hope you will feel it. And that is better than description. There are some of you who can say, I do not need descriptions, for I have felt it. I went to Christ and told him my case and prayed for him to meet me. And now I believe, and I have gone my way rejoicing in him. We will just say these words and be done. In summing up, one may notice that this sinner, though he was a long way off, was not received to full pardon and to adoption and acceptance by a gradual process, but he was received at once. He was not allowed to enter into the outer house first and to sleep in a barn at night, and then after that allowed to come and sometimes have his meals with the servants in the kitchen, and then after that allowed to sit at the bottom of the table and by degrees brought near. No, but the father embraced him and kissed him at the first moment. He gets as near to God the first moment as he ever will. So a saved soul may not enjoy and know as much as he one day will, but he is as near and dear to God the first moment he believes as he ever will be. A true heir of all things in Christ and as truly so as when he shall go up to heaven to be glorified and to be like his Lord. Oh, what a wonder is this. Fresh from the pigsty, was he not? Yet in a father's arms. Fresh from the swine with their grunting in his ears. And now he hears a father's loving words. What a change. And all at once. I say there is no gradual process in this. But the thing is done at once. In a moment, he comes to his father. His father comes to him. And he is in his father's arms. Observe again, as there was not a gradual reception, there was not a partial reception. He was not forgiven with conditions. He was not received to his father's heart if he would do such and such a thing. No, there were no ifs and no buts. He was kissed and clothed and feasted without a single condition of any kind whatsoever. No questions asked. His father had cast his offenses behind his back in a moment, and he was received without even a criticism or a rebuke. It was not a partial reception. He was not received to some things and refused others. He was not, for instance, allowed to call himself a child, but to think of himself as inferior. No, he wears the best robe. He has the ring on his finger, he has the shoes on his feet, and he joins in eating the fattened calf. And so the sinner is not received to a second-class place, but he is taken to the full position of a child of God. It is not a gradual nor a partial reception. And once more, it is not a temporary reception. His father did not kiss him and then send him out the back door. He did not receive him for a time and then afterwards say to him, Go your way. I have had pity on you and now you have a new start. Go into the far country and mend your ways. No, but the father would say to him what he has already said to the elder brother. Son, 
You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. In the parable, the son could not have the goods restored, for he had spent his part. But in the truth itself and matter of fact, God does make the man who comes in at the eleventh hour equal with the one who came in at the first hour of the day. He gives every laborer the same payment, and he gives to the child who has wandered the most the same privileges and ultimately the same heritage that he gives to his own who have been with him many years and have not transgressed his commandments. That is a remarkable passage in one of the prophets where he says, Ekron shall be like the Jebusites, meaning that the Philistine, when converted, should be treated just the same as the original inhabitants of Jerusalem, that the branches of the olive tree which were grafted in have the same privileges as the original branches. When God takes men from being heirs of wrath and makes them heirs of grace, they have just as much privilege at the start as though they had been heirs of grace for 20 years, because in God's sight, they always were heirs of grace. And from all eternity, he viewed his most wandering sons, not as they stood in Adam's fall, when sin and ruin covered all, but as they'll stand another day, fairer than sun's meridian ray. Oh, I pray to God that he would, in his infinite mercy, bring some of his own dear children home this day, and he shall have the praise, world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon originally preached by Charles Spurgeon. Some of the content has been updated and abridged, and scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible. You can support this ministry by sharing the podcast and leaving positive reviews. Most importantly, please pray that God would use this ministry to save those who are lost and impassion His people for His glory.